Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is Rory, Anne-Marie, and Mike from the My Wall Street Stock Analyst teams. Today, we're talking about the reasons why Amazon buying MGM makes sense, even though acquisitions are generally bad ideas why companies that pay their employees will tend to be better long-term investments, and how cybersecurity will become one of the mega-trends for investors to hop on board in the next decade. So we're all big fans of TikTok here on Stock Club, but Anne-Marie, you shared a video with us a few days ago. It was part of the kind of, I suppose, suspicious uh, fintwit side of TikTok. I don't know if you can call it fintwit if it's on TikTok, but it was how to get rich in three easy steps. And the steps were as follows. It was steal hotel soap, invest the savings in the S&P 500 and become a millionaire. So when you shared this video with us at the time, um, you said you had a few questions about it. Have you d- dug any more in depth on this new investing strategy we seem to have all missed? Um, I haven't done a lot of research into it. I think my primary concern with this video was the person estimated that people on average were spending $45 a month on soap. And (laughs) my real question was, what type of soap was he using? Did he think it was beneficial? Should we all be spending $45 a month on soap? It was just, it was just very unclear. Well, Rory, you're from the south side of Dublin, so that that's pretty fancy soap. <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> fancy soap. You probably, well, what's your monthly soap what? budget? <laughs> I don't want to talk about what? it. Are, are we overlooking the fact that your man is also 10 years of age as well, giving finance advice? Yeah, well, <laughs> let's not start giving out to people for giving finance advice, seeing as we're on a podcast here right now. <laughs> um, so moving on to, to more, I suppose, pertinent topics. Um, over the past few weeks, we've seen a rotation away from some of the biggest, best-performing stay-at-home growth stocks of 2020. Um, a lot of this movement has, has kind of centered on more traditional cyclical companies, notably restaurants and retailers, as many people expect them to reopen in the next few weeks and months. However, many of these stores that have been shut down for on and off for the last 12 months are actually finding it very, very hard to get workers back into the into the, into the store. Um, desperate to capitalize on the customers that are flooding back, major companies like Amazon, Walmart, McDonald's and Chipotle Mexican Grill are all now raising their wages in a bid to meet labor demands. And Rhea, I know you've been doing a little bit of research on this what's going on here do you think there's a danger that many of these stores and restaurants just won't be able to open if they can't fill their employee shortages um i think there's definitely a danger in a lack of employees i think number one it means that locations can't open and number two it puts a tremendous amount of strain on the employees that are still within the companies and that creates um not a great work environment for them and it means that more and more employees are likely to walk off the job yeah um I think it's definitely something that we're seeing concentrated within the restaurant sector, particularly within fast food. And then we're also seeing it in retail. And I think maybe a bigger question that we should be asking is I think some people were really quick to place the blame upon the increase in unemployment benefits that the Biden administration introduced in light of the pandemic. And people basically argued, well, if people can make more on unemployment, why would they work a minimum wage job? And I think maybe the better question was, why are people like, why is our 
minimum wage, not keeping up with what we have determined is the absolute minimum for an unemployment payment during a pandemic. Yeah. And I think it's just highlighted the complete stagnation of the federal minimum wage in the United States. Um, as, as a share of gross domestic product, worker compensation is at the lowest point and has been ever in the second half of the 20th century in the United States. And when we calculated inflation, a minimum wage worker today would make less than someone in the 1960s or 70s working on minimum wage. Wow. And so it's really uh, less, a, less a reflection of, I guess, um, corporations and I think more a reflection of, of how we've allowed the federal minimum wage to sit completely stagnantly, which I would kind of place blame upon the way that the legislation functions in the United States in that Congress has to pass a legis- uh, an, an increase every couple of years, and it means that it has to get through the House and the Senate, whereas in a lot of other countries that have minimum wage legislation, an impartial committee meets once a year and raises the minimum wage based on things like average salary and inflation. And yeah. so I think it's we're really kind of just catching up with the fact that the wages have sat stagnant and the corporations have taken advantage of the fact that we have a low-wage economy and I don't think people are really going to stand for it anymore because it really is a, a poverty wage. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose then the other side of the argument and the argument you, you often hear from these big companies is that, you know, rising labor costs will mean that will have a big impact on their bottom line and, and their, their margins. Rory, would you be concerned with this? No. <laughs> right, moving on then. Um, <laughs> done. Yeah. No, it's like, it's another symbol of this K-shaped recovery that we're starting to see where people who are you know working good jobs are able to work from home haven't been as impacted by the pandemic as other people i think there was something where it's like if you're if you're earning like a hundred thousand dollars a year your opportunity you've like 80 percent chances you can work from home was if you're earning less than forty thousand dollars a year there was like a 10 percent chance you could do that and um there's an awful lot of stuff's going on at the moment we're seeing like the crazy numbers where restaurants just cannot hire workers and they're pulling out all sorts of tricks out of the bags mcdonald's is offering like free new iphones for people just to like come in and do an interview with them essentially like just start offering yeah. decent wages to people the 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 minimum wage for tip workers is the same as it was 30 years ago um and it's it's gonna impact the economy in a terrible way because you're not gonna have consumers yeah. to buy your products um uh, i mean look we've a lot, a lot of the companies that we look at, we always like to look at companies that are providing decent living wages. Costco, for example, has been a kind of shining light in this area where they constantly are raising their minimum wage, paying their their employees a decent salary. And they're the, they're the companies that people love to go to. They're the companies that get great reviews on Glassdoor, the, company the companies that people have a real affection for. You know, people love shopping at Costco because they feel they're part of this like good deal, this good, this, yeah. this deal that works out for everyone. Um, and I think it's becoming a much more important element of people's investing philosophy is this whole ESG, social responsibility thing. There's, you know, consultancies out there that are just being asked, how do we make ourselves look better? How do we make, how do we put out more PR to say that we're, we're a better company? Yeah. <laughs> just be a better company. You know, that's, that, well, just on that's the, the main way of doing there, it. Um, you know, Costco is famous for paying its employees well above the minimum wage. And, you know, from an investor's point of view then too, it's also been a very good investment. It's up more than 150% in the past five years. It's up close to fivefold in the last 10 years. What is the correlation, do you think, between paying employees well and good business performance? Um, well, I think kind of people are kind of having a bit of short-term panic in terms of they're thinking in the next year, if all of these companies are forced to raise wages, it means that their expenses will increase and therefore their bottom line or their profitability will decrease. And I think that that is a risk for kind of a short-term investor, but I think you really need to be looking in the long-term. And I think Costco is an absolutely great case study for that. Costco is like one of my favorite stocks. I think it is my favorite kind of brick and mortar retailer stock. Mm. 
And back in the kind of late 90s and early 2000s, the stock really suffered because it would they would consistently put out these press releases saying, we're improving our minimum wage, we're increasing the medical insurance that our employees are getting. And it kind of freaked out investors, even though Costco was consistently showing 25% revenue growth year over year. And so investors were just cold on the stock and they weren't interested in it. But their CEO and founder, Jim Senegal, he really did stand firm. And he said, no, if Costco has good working conditions, it will mean that the employees who work there will stay longer and they'll be happier and that will translate into better customer service, which will translate into more memberships and more sales. And he was right. Costco has higher returns per employee than any other retail player. Their workers stay on average for nine years, which is tremendous in the retail space. Yeah, that's incredible. Which means they have low recruitment costs, they have high retention rates, and they have industry-leading productivity for their employees. And this is because in 2020, their minimum wage was $16 an hour, and more than half of their hourly employees were making more than $25 an hour, and they offer comprehensive health insurance to everyone. And But I really do think this is something that has to kind of be established from the top in that Jim Senegal, he took a pay cut in order to ensure that they had this amount of money to kind of make sure that lower employees are being paid. And he paid all of his executives lower than they probably would have earned at a competing company. So do you think this is a sea change we're going to see across the wider industry that that more of these, you know, when when there's more people working from home and higher paid jobs and more of this uh, labor pressure on, on the kind of the lower minimum wage jobs? Do you think we will see this or do you think, you know, the blame will just be put elsewhere as we see so often? Um, I do. I do think it's it's going to be a change. I really think it'll probably be a generational change. I think yeah. millennials and members of Gen Z are much better at being aware of kind of company practices. I think they're much better at recognizing the fact that a CEO makes hundreds of billions of dollars doesn't necessarily mean that a company is great or that you should be supporting it. I think um, part of the reason people like Costco is because it is a known fact that their employees are paid very well. And I think it means that you have an easier time going there and spending money. Moving on then, there's been two big bits of merger and acquisition news recently. The first one is AT&T and Discovery, who have entered into a merger, media merger deal to create a new streaming giant that's reportedly worth upwards of $150 billion. This will see the likes of CNN, HBO and Warner Brothers combined with the Discovery Channel Animal Planet. The other piece of M&A news confirmed just before we started recording today is that Amazon is set to buy MGM Studios for just under $9 billion. This is the second largest acquisition that Amazon has ever made just behind Whole Foods. MGM is well known for its repertoire of classic movie titles, but probably most relevantly and most recently also the James Bond franchise. Um, Rory, with these two massive kind of deals, one a merger deal, one an acquisition deal, which, which has caught your attention most? Well, I, earlier this week I wrote a... T- Daily Insight in which I said the Amazon deal probably wasn't going to happen um, because uh, Amazon management are traditionally like have a zero tolerance policy on leaks. So, so if you hear would, about a deal leaking, apparently, like that usually means the deal's off. So would you say you um, were wrong, Rory? I just can't believe Jeff did me dirty like that. <laughs> it's in his new role. He's moved away from the CEO. Yeah, he's so gone. He's not looking after it you anymore, soft. Rory. <laughs> Oh, maybe that maybe the deal was agreed beforehand, or maybe I don't know. Maybe this is the exception that proves the rule. Anyway, as you said, the deal's going ahead. Uh, they're getting four thousand films, seventeen thousand TV shows. Like you mentioned, Bond is obviously the big kind of draw, but it's also they've also got some good TV content like Fargo and The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it comes a week from when we heard AT and T was essentially abandoning its ill-advised soiree into the contents world. Um, they're spinning off their Warner Media division, previously uh, Time Warner. That includes HBO, TNT, 
uh, CNN and all the kind of Warner Bros film and TV and IP. And, and yeah, combining it with the Discovery Channel, which everyone knows from the, the namesake Discovery Channel, as well as HGTV, which is primarily focused on reality programming, like the Food Network and the DIY Channel. And I mean, it never made any sense for AT&T to acquire Time Warner. Yeah. These were two businesses that have totally opposite goals. AT&T, what they wanted, they want to lock in subscribers in this zero-sum game they've got going with Verizon and T-Mobile. Whereas Time Warner wants to create content and monetize it as broadly as possible. So your content's kind of like software. You spend a lot of money creating it and then you try and get it out to as many people as possible because it's zero marginal cost. Yeah. It doesn't matter to you whether someone watches, whether 10 people watch it or whether 10 million people watch it. So try and get 10 million people to watch it. Um, so trying to lock it away behind you know, an AT&T subscription just never seemed to make sense. Um, I think AT&T here kind of fell for the classic plastic surgeon trap, which is something Aswath Damodorian says is always a big problem with M&A deals. Uh, they're, kind of, they're always fueled by investment bankers. Yeah. In the way plastic surgery is fueled by plastic surgeons, you know, you never walk into a plastic surgeon's office and he says, he says, uh, you know, you're perfect. You need nothing. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't. You're just, you're perfect well, just the way you are. Speak for yourself, Owen. <laughs> um, but you know, but on, on that point, like content became the real buzzword there for a few years. Everything was moving into content. There was rumors about Apple moving. Well, I suppose Apple did move into content kind of with Apple TV. Amazon obviously has their content arm. It seemed like every kind of, big tech company was just kind of strapping on a content arm. Yeah, but so tech companies are kind of able to do that. You know, going back to the plastic surgery uh, <laughs> analogy, like AT&T was this old world cash generating utility that was and like went in, investment banker says, we can make you young again. Have you heard about this thing called content? It's the big, <laughs> next big thing. It's big. Um, and they paid an arm and a leg, $84 billion yeah. to get in this content uh, thing it actually reminds me if you've ever watched Succession, it's the Volter deal yeah. in Succession. <laughs> the part where he goes in and he's wearing like the high tops. Yeah, <laughs> that's like <laughs> that's pretty much what's going on. Um, so, but then like counter to that, right? So Amazon is now buying exclusive content. So why is one deal a good deal and the other deal a bad deal? Well, first of all, Amazon Prime is already in two hundred million households worldwide. So I don't think the comparison is is quite the same. You know, they're not hiding away content. The vast majority of people have Amazon Prime. Yeah, they already have the, the reach. Yeah, they already have the reach. Essentially, they're just adding on more stuff into their kind of massive distribution. And um, it's also not a zero sum game. Like you look at something like I would assume just by looking at the numbers, most households in the US already have both Prime and Netflix and potentially Disney Plus. Even adding all those up, you're, it's still nothing compared to your traditional cable bill. And um, I'm also not entirely, I mean, I'm not entirely sure or sold on this idea that Prime Video is a retention tool. It's certainly kind of a nice benefit, but my theory on Prime Video is that it actually acts as an enticement for customers who aren't able to reap the full benefits of Prime. Yeah. Um, so there's plenty of places out there where Amazon doesn't have the infrastructure yet to do the whole two-day delivery or where there's not as much selection in terms of goods that are available through Prime. Um, so places like Ireland, for example, yeah. where we are, uh, they've got some differentiated content. You know, if there's a particular box set you want to binge on or some sort of Hollywood winning movie you want to see, you might. it's only available on Amazon. So, you know, you sign up for a subscription for a month and then meanwhile, during that month, you, you there's something you need to buy. You go on Amazon, you realize it's on Prime. It's not going to be two-day delivery, but it's going to be a few days and it's going to be free. 
And, you know, the next thing you wake up on the floor of your apartment surrounded by <laughs> recipe books you don't need, uh, wondering how you got there. Uh, I'm talking from experience. <laughs> I was about to say again, Rory, speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of, I, that's where I think the difference is between these two deals. And, and, you know, Amazon spent, I think it was 11 billion last year on content alone. Yeah. So this is such a drop in the bucket for them, even though it's the second biggest acquisition they've ever made. Um, Speaking more broadly then, you know, we, we've spoken about this before that how, you know, although they're quite exciting to hear about, and especially if you're a shareholder in a company, mergers and acquisitions are more often than not terrible for shareholders. Can you explain that a little bit more, Rory? You know, why why do most mergers and acquisitions just not work out? Well, yeah, it's I mean, so this goes back to a Harvest Business Review article that was published in 2011. Um, Clayton Christensen, I think, was the main author, but he was helped by others. They discovered that something like 70% and 90% of uh, mergers and acquisitions are end up being failures uh, and you know it, it kind of goes into that yet they still persist to this yeah. day we're on a record this year for deals already I think it's 1.4 trillion Bloomberg reported yesterday and you know it, it, I'm not going to quote the entire article I think people can go and read it themselves if they want to but essentially you need to look at each acquisition with kind of you know new eyes fresh eyes and go what exactly are they doing here yeah. is it some sort of like tuck in or bolt in acquisition that's going to leverage another company's business model or are they just buying customers yeah and 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 that's what you really need to look at not every, every investor seems to get really excited when they hear a company that they're invested in is acquiring someone because they get the sense that oh well you know if they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars you know things must be good they must be you know they're out there they're making deals it isn't always the case in fact very rarely it is the case and we've seen in the past you know I think of Eventbrite's acquisition yeah. of Ticketfly that was so damaging for the business. Whereas you look like a company like PayPal or Twilio or Salesforce seem to have very, very good track records in terms of their acquisition strategy and are able to, you know, bring in those companies and grow, help them grow out their businesses. Um, so yeah, you know, it's it's really one of those things where you do need to look at each acquisition separately and kind of judge for yourself and use management's previous track record as a kind of judge as well. Um, because an awful lot of managers go out and try and buy growth. Well, if we're going by track record, I'll, I'll assume then you, that you think that the AT&T Discovery one is a bit of a disaster waiting to happen. Well, I mean, it's at least they're getting out of what was a bad deal in the first place. Because now, I, I actually think, you know, AT&T uh, can go back to focusing on what they're actually good at. And Time Warner and Discovery could potentially become a kind of third player in this streaming market. Um you know, there's an awful lot of ifs and buts there because HBO has a lot of its, its international content tied up for the next few years, but at least they're now, they have like a complete package that they could potentially use as, a, you know, as an alternative to the Netflix, Disney kind of duopoly that's there at the moment. Absolutely. Let's move on then. And I suppose dominating the news outside of the stock market has been all of the cyber attacks and hacks that have happened recently. So at the start of this month, the Colonial Pipeline System, which supplies most of fuel and gas supplies to the east coast of America, was almost completely paralysed due to a cyber attack. Here in Ireland, our public health service, known as the HSE, was also the victim of a massive cyber attack recently as patient records and other sensitive data was held ransom for a $20 million price tag. Um, the group behind that attack, Conti Ransomware, have been identified as FBI has been involved in these 16 attacks targeting US healthcare and first responder networks, and more than 400 organizations globally have been targeted by Conti too. Um, Mike, with so many co- organizations working remotely and many companies never returning to the office or never fully returning to the office, the issue of cybercrime is only going to become more profound. And I suppose the inverse of that is that there's a massive opportunity for cybersecurity companies. I know you've been looking a lot into cybersecurity as a major trend 
um, in the next decade for workplaces. What are your thoughts on, on the current landscape? Yeah, I mean, the last few weeks have shown that cybersecurity measures have now become mission critical for organizations across the globe. Do you know, it wasn't a few it wasn't too long ago we were talking about the solar winds attack too as well. Yeah. So I dug up some stats here. So according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the global cost of cybercrime is going to be about $1 trillion annually. Yeah. And IBM estimates that the average cost of data breach is about $4 million. PwC did a survey on CEOs and they put cybercrime and data privacy second among 11 areas of impact and value. So yeah, there's yeah, going like, to be huge it, amounts of spending here from enterprises across the globe. Yeah, it, uh, it's no longer a case of, you know, locking the front door in many of these businesses. Like there, there's multiple front doors into the really sensitive data in these companies and it's on every single employee's laptop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you described there the intricacies and the nuances of the industry where there's so many smaller com- companies that provide niche products and services. It's not enough to just go in, read through a 10K and a few earnings reports and guess a sense of the company and its competitors. You yeah. kind of have to do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and I found it myself, you know, without the technical knowledge uh, to fully identify the business needs and distinguish and benchmark competitors, quite a difficult industry look at from an analysis perspective you know what's the difference well like is endpoint security more important than access management or why does this company command a higher multiple if they have both similar if they both have similar numbers you know yeah. so i think um, rory you discussed this before it's very important to expand your circle of competence uh cybersecurity is definitely one of those areas where if you need if you want to invest in these companies you have to educate yourself further on on the industry as a whole the hierarchy of security needs businesses will have so um yeah yeah, and, and as you mentioned, Mike Rory, you've you've spoken about this at length. And I know, for example, in in my Wall Street, we have one um one major way to expose yourself to cyber uh, security, which is the hack ETF, which is you know obviously an ETF of lots of different cybersecurity companies. Is it a case that the the field is just too fragmented to be able to invest in one or two companies and get broad exposure? I'm not sure if it's too, I mean, it is massively fragmented. And I think one of the main things with cybersecurity companies is like the their main thing that they sell is the one biggest weakness that they have because all you need is one news article where one thing that they predict gets hacked and suddenly their uh, reputation is damaged. Yeah. And um, when we look back at cybersecurity companies years ago, it, it did become one of those questions or those just decisions where it was like, we're outside our circle of competence here. We don't have the technical know-how to judge which company has an edge and everyone we talked to said something different um but yeah i mean look it's becoming a huge thing it's i don't know if any of you have noticed it but i'm being scammed on a regular basis now (laughs) i'm too scared to to, uh answer my phone i don't respond to any text messages i don't like i don't even know if you you are who you say you are right now that's how paranoid i am (laughs) Um, uh so like and there's and there's so many different areas to look at zero trust networking was one that i've become particularly interested in over the last few um, few months. We talk about companies like Cloudflare and CrowdStrike and another one called Okta uh, that's, that seems to be really involved in this space. But again, it's one of those areas where if you don't have a kind of edge, you're really mm. kind of relying on someone else to kind of explain it to you and, and, and know what's going to be the best investment out there. Absolutely. Mike, any companies that you're looking at? Yeah, so I looked at a few there and came across the similar similar difficulties as Rory in that it's tough to distinguish the edge. Um, but there was Verona Systems, Tenable, 
know before, which provides uh, security training. There's a few interesting companies out there, all with about a $5 billion market cap. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking now that we're definitely going to have Emmett on the next episode telling his story about being hacked again. He told it it multiple times in his podcast. Emmett, if you're listening, I'm sorry you're not here for this one. He's going to throw in Tom Hanks now as well, just to punish you and call him out. He's going to be like a bull on the next one that we're talking about him now and he has no no chance to respond. So let's move on and take a quick look and see what's going on in my Wall Street at the moment. It's the end of May, so that means our, our Stock of the Month report, our exclusive Stock of the Month podcast are both live in the My Wall Street app now. We've also added our brand new stock to the shortlist last week. This is a company that's defined the SaaS business model as we know it and can give your portfolio some much needed stability in these very volatile times. I'm also really excited to say that we have a brand new podcast series launching in the next few weeks. Get Started, The Beginner's Guide to the Stock Market is a five-part series that's been designed to give would-be investors all the information they need to just get started. Based on the lessons from my Wall Street's Learn app, which has been downloaded millions of times globally to date, Get Started covers everything from why long-term investing has been proven time and time again to be the best wealth creation strategy to the things we look for in finding great companies. Rory, me and you sat down, I think it was actually this day last week, and we recorded all five of these episodes in one go. Um, What would you say about the Get Started series? I'd say it's the hardest I've ever worked. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the day, I was like tired. I was like, is this what a full day's work feels like? Because if so, (laughs) sign me out. (laughs) so it sounds like we're not going to get any more of these series based on Rory's assessment of it there so you better uh, keep an eye out uh, for that series which will be launched next week Uh, Jargon Busters so we've two questions this week Mike the first question is over to you and this comes from David in New Zealand he got in touch with us through Twitter and he was talking about how the All Blacks which are New Zealand's national rugby team and are widely considered as the most successful sports team in any sport ever they're selling a 12.5% stake in the team to Silver Lake for a report reportedly close to 400 million dollars um, David wanted to know if it would be possible to invest in All Blacks uh, should Silver Lake acquire part of the team and more broadly are there any other publicly listed sports teams that we're interested in yeah, so uh, unless you've got a pretty heavy checkbook, I don't think you'd be able to invest in Silver Lake. It's on the private markets. Yeah. But it was interesting because this question came in and then in the same week, Oak Tree Capital just acquired a significant stake in Inter Milan as well. Yeah. So there's clearly an interest here from the big private equity firms to go after these sports teams. And for good reason as well. There's uh, Jerry Jones famously bought the Dallas Cowboys for $150 million in 1989. It's worth about $6 billion now. And even the SPAC king, Shamath, uh, put $25 million into the Golden State Warriors in 2010. It's now worth about $500 million. Wow. So the unfortunate thing for me or you, and I'm not sure if the listener is the same David. boat, <laughs> um, is that all these deals were on the private markets. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not the same opportunities as on the public markets um i'm i did a bit of research here we have man united juventus Borussia dortmund roma the new york knicks the atlanta braves and the toronto blue jays are all publicly traded in some way there's also uh green bay packers inc which fans can buy stock in but it can't be traded pays no dividends and doesn't appreciate in value so yeah sign me up <laughs> that's, that's what i want put a spack on that <laughs> <laughs> and marie you were you'd mentioned the screen bay packers thing and how the fans are so passionate about 
like this company that they're investing in these these stocks they've no real hope of any return on yeah and i think it's kind of it's considered i think the magic of the green bay packers is that it's fan owned it's the only nfl team that is fan owned and kind of owned by the public and it's helped keep green bay in wisconsin in in a relatively small city really for an nfl team and it's kept them in lambeau field which is kind of a famous field for the nfl but it's like the least sophisticated stadium and yeah i think fans just buy it because they love the green bay packers like they get a little stock certificate they frame it they hang it up and it just makes them feel closer to the team but yeah no they don't really reap any kind of monetary benefit from it yeah yeah i think it's considered merchandise as much as anything yeah uh, man united's a public company and i mean i'm a fan i'd never buy the stock no and it's a good point you made as well because there's kind of an intrinsic conflict between the commercial side uh of a football team and a sporting side of a team uh like if you consider i looked it up the european super league would have added $12.7 billion collectively to the 12 founding clubs of it. Yeah. And you saw the fans' reaction to it. And it's that kind of turning the fan into a customer, which is good for business, but goes against everything you know from supporting a club. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a conflict of interest there. I was going to say you would never see people supporting companies like that, but then there's a the few Apple fanboys in my Wall Street <laughs> who, uh, who maybe maybe make my argument null and void there. Alejandro and Jamie will be getting a shout out here, yeah. <laughs> Not to name any names. We'll have to redact that. Uh, let's move on to the next question then. And Rory, I'm throwing this over to you. This comes in from Stefan, who emailed us in at pod at mywallstreet.com. He asked about our perspective on metrics like like return on equity or returns on capital uh, and how much emphasis we put on them when we're assessing a potential stock for my Wall Street? It really depends on the company. Um, ROE, return on, on equity, is an insightful metric when you're measuring, it's kind of a measurement of how efficient a company is at generating profits. Um, there's a couple of different ways people calculate it, but I think the most typical is you divide net income by shareholder equity. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Breaking it down, let's say I have a company that only does one thing. It just owns one building that's worth ten million, and it has a nine million dollar loan on that on that building. So that means the equity in the company is one million, and let's say it generates two hundred thousand dollars in rent a year. That means you have a twenty percent return on equity. Okay. Um, now, since profit is one of the inputs, you can't use ROA to measure unprofitable companies, and it's certainly not suitable for companies that are in high growth mode, since profitability isn't the key consideration there. Uh, it's a much more valuable info for companies that are kind of mature, cash-generating businesses. Um, Brian Foreman is kind of notorious, brilliant, consistently high ROE business because management are kind of constantly reevaluating their business and discontinuing or selling off any unperforming segments or brands. Yeah. Um, and just from that point, does, does it sound like ROE can, can be a negative sometimes for a company if they focus too much on it? They, they maybe you know, cast off brands or portfolios that aren't performing in the short term? Yeah, potentially. I mean, potentially it could be it could be something that they overfocus on when they don't give something you know a, a chance to kind of take off or to or to build out something. Um, but it it definitely is kind of one of those things that you you would never use for a company that is a, a rapid grower. Yeah. I think um, the the was the example there was like Viva is very high ROE and Shopify doesn't. Um, Viva is just like this cash generating machine that can, can continue to grow even though it's it's generating huge profits where Shopify is kind of foregoing profits right now in order to grow. So the, t- the comparison doesn't work. Um, you know, like all of them, like any kind of valuation metric, you use it as a tool, as part of a kind of broader arsenal of tools. You don't rely on it as that's the only thing you look at. You have to consider what industry they're in. You got to consider what life cycle the company's in. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things 
always do take a look at it if you can figure it out yourself don't rely by the way on yahoo finance to figure it out for you because they consistently get it wrong you really do need to get into the balance sheet yourself and work it out uh but don't use it as a kind of one-stop shop for whether something's a good investment or not okay cool thanks for that so let's move on to the elevator pitch to finish out today's show so earlier this week cnbc published their annual disruptor 50 list this is a collection of 50 private companies that have been identified as the next generation of great public companies by a panel of leading thinkers in the field of innovation and entrepreneurship from around the world if we go back to the first list in 2013 for example uh, the, they identified private companies like airbnb atlassian etsy pinterest palantir shopify spotify square and twilio as private companies that could disrupt the public market of course they also picked some companies like aero and nebula that later went bankrupt so you can't win them all but in general they seem to have a pretty good hit rate so for this week's elevator pitch i asked the three of you to review the list of 50 companies they picked this year and pick one company from it to pitch to me so remember these are these are private companies but company that you you can see coming to the public markets in the next few years and, and causing a bit of a stir um and marie i'll go to you first I am pitching number 48 on the list, which is Patreon. I really, really like Patreon. It's a, yes. it's a membership platform that provides business tools for content creators to run a subscription service. And I think that this is something that's um, kind of going to become more and more common. I think people are growing accustomed to the idea that if you really like something, if you really like content or you really like an artist, you need to pay money to help support them so that they can continue to do this as their job. I think it's something that we're beginning to see become really popular with paid newsletters, which is a space that Twitter is trying to get into. This is basically the the play for all types of content, whether that be, you know, YouTube videos or articles or um, even even like painters and animators use it. Um, And so I really like the company from that. I also really like their CEO. His name is Jack Conti. I was um, accidentally ended up subscribing to him on YouTube several years ago before I knew who he was. He like has a band and he's a musician and he started the company because he needed a way to help people help support him. And on his YouTube channel, he's really great about, he posts a video once a week and it's usually him just like sitting in his garage or in his music studio. And it's him walking people through like the decisions he's made that week for the company, why he's done it and for what reason and where he sees the company going. So for example, last month they raised like $150 million. They went through a round of funding and then he put up a 10 minute video where he was like, this is what we're going to do with it. Here's how we raise the money. And uh, here's where we see the company in the next five years. And I think that level of transparency is really nice to see. And I think um, it's a great reflection on the product as well, because it's, it's that idea of being open with people and supporting them. Yeah, absolutely. Did, that he, great. did he say Patreon raise money on Patreon? Uh, I don't Patreon. think he said that exactly, but that is a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should start a Patreon, James, you and me. Start our own Patreon. Break away, Rory, like we've always planned. Go on, Rory, you can, <laughs> you can give me your pitch next. My pitch for us breaking away or my pitch for CNBC? <laughs> Go with the CNBC one. We'll keep that other one private. All right, okay. Um... Yeah, look, I didn't, I didn't read all fifty of them to be quite honest with you. Um, That's a good start. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the obvious one, I go like the obvious one would be going with Stripe, our, our neighbours around the corner, yeah. whose business I've waxed lyrical about many times before. Who, I, you know, I really love those guys. I'll stay in the same space, but 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 drift a bit and say, um, Plaid looks like a really interesting business. Uh, it's a company that helps. Uh, customers link their bank accounts to third-party apps like Vemno and Robinhood and Coinbase and even our uh, selected brokerage partner, I think, is connected through Plaid. Yep. Um, it also has kind of budgeting tools and analytics to help people track their spending. It integrates 
with more than 11,000 banks and has 200 million customer accounts. It was the big story last year was that Visa was going to acquire it for about $5.5 billion. Thankfully, the DOJ blocked that, which I think is great news for investors because I do think it'll be a very interesting standalone company and one I'd love to be able to own in the future. Cool. I buy that. Mike, what company are you pitching? Yeah, I picked Marketa because I recognized it from Twitter about a week before I saw this list. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, when you don't put effort into the research, you're not supposed to say it on air. (laughs) It's like a disclaimer. Yeah. They can come back at us. Um, But it's a digital and contactless payments processor. Just filed to go public last week. So there's an S1 out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, Customers include DoorDash, Uber, Affirm, and PowerSquare's debit card for businesses and its cash app. Um, it's growing revenue at like 123%, I think. And in the last year, so it got valued at $4.3 billion. That's last cash raise. Uh, in the private markets, it's trading for about $16 billion recently. So there's a lot of hype about this one. I'm sure we'll have another nut job IPO in the weeks to come. Yeah, that's it, that you can't touch the shares for anywhere near the IPO price. Um, So that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You'll find us, as always, on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.